Greetings everyone. Welcome to Scientious Soundwaves. I am Jiana Lakravala, your host for today. Joined with us today is esteemed Dr. Nitin Baliga, Director and Professor at the Institute for Systems Biology and Affiliate Professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Washington. Dr. Baliga leads a cr- cross-disciplinary team of scientists to address complex problems relevant to global health, personalized medicine, energy and environment. Mr. Baliga, Dr. Baliga entered a national competition and won the highly coveted Central Government of India sponsored Depa- Department of Biotechnology Studentship. Dr. Baliga has also won the prestigious Council for Scientific and Industrial Research Fellowship through another Central Government of India sponsored national competition. Dr. Baliga's lab- laboratory has been support- supported by the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, NASA, Department of Energy and the Department of Defense. How impressive is this? Moving on to today's podcast topic, we shall delve upon bridging science education and research. This refers to the connection and integration of scientific knowledge and practices between educational institutions and research organizations. The main goal of bridging science education and research is to enhance the quality of both science education and scientific research by creating synergies and fostering a mutually beneficial relationship between the two, such as curriculum design, experiential learning, collaboration, student research opportunities, etc. So would you like to say anything? Oh, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm glad you're doing this podcast. This is an important topic, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for that. So moving on to the questions. Uh, what strategies can be employed to encourage more collaboration between science educators and researchers to bridge the gap between academia and scientific discoveries? This needs to happen at uh, multiple levels. One is we need to incentivize scientists to participate in uh, education and outreach programs and funding agencies like the National Science Foundation has done this really well. So when you apply for a research grant on the National Science Foundation, they require the scientists to include a component on what they call broader impacts, which essentially is uh, activities devoted to education and outreach. Okay. And about roughly up to 25% of the budget can be devoted to this. Uh, broader impacts effort. Scientists have to take this opportunity to develop a sustainable program, which is a key thing. So it's not a episodic effort where they can invest time and effort into transferring knowledge to society. And there's other institutional policies that can also encourage scientists' involvement. So in many places, including where I work, mm-hmm. you, you recognize contributions by scientists and faculty towards education and outreach. So when it is recognized at the leadership level and considered as a uh, metric of success, then scientists who participate in education and outreach get rewarded appropriately. So on the education side, uh, teachers also have to be incentivized to participate in um, 
engaging with research and, and embedding themselves in research institutes to participate in the transfer process. The transfer of knowledge is what I mean. And this includes things like protected time or paid internships for teachers. Uh, and I would go one step further and point out that even students need to be part of this whole process where students get to do internships in uh, research laboratories. Yeah. And in so doing, they can learn and also contribute towards development of curriculum modules. And we can talk more about this later. Okay, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, moving on to the second question. How can experiential learning opportunities such as research internships be better incorporated into science education programs to provide students with practical exposure to the research process? Because I think research is a very important part of the university um, curriculum. And so how can students you know, just get better at it? There's many different formats in which this has been done well. Uh, in my own laboratory, we have three or four different formats in which we bring in students. So our focus has been historically on high school students, but we also do undergraduate internships and graduate level internships and so on. And we also bring in teachers, but let me first focus on the high school internships. And because my laboratory has uh, a finite number of resources and uh, effort that we can devote towards such uh, internship activities. Yeah. I decided to focus my laboratory on uh, uh, high school students who are rising seniors, meaning yeah. the year before. 12th um, grade, essentially, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So when they're going from 11th grade to 12th grade. So the summer is when we felt would be the time when we would be able to have maximum impact on their uh, career choices and uh, trajectories uh, because it's a very crucial year okay. and also they're fairly mature at the time that you know th there are a lot of logistical and regulatory hurdles in bringing students into research laboratories so this is a good compromise so so we've been doing research internships for over 20 years where okay. we um, have a competitive application process, but we primarily encourage students from disadvantaged backgrounds to apply. Um, and we get the very best students, uh, regardless of background, into the program. And it's a very difficult uh, um, decision to select a few students from hundreds of applicants. Yeah. And the students can participate in different kinds of internships. There's one that has been going on the longest is a, a six to eight week internship program okay. where the students come in and spend um, roughly the, you know, 20 to 40 hours a week uh, working at the laboratory under the mentorship of scientists and they get their own projects and uh, um, they work in teams yeah. of two or more and do actual research and some of the students have also been included as authors on publications that have come out of the research laboratory. Yeah. And what they also do is they um, keep a record of their activities in the form of a web journal. So it's like a website. So they get training, cross-disciplinary training, not just in doing research and iron a uh, systems biology laboratory. So they get to work hands-on, but they also get to do computational analysis of large data sets. They get to build websites and 
um, communicate the results in that manner. And you can go to our website and find that there are journals kept by students for over 20 years. And it's quite instructive to see the development over uh, the six to eight week period. There are a couple other formats in which we run the program. Uh, there's something called an ambassadors program that we run, which okay. is uh, more of a hybrid version where students come in and spend a few hours in the research laboratory, get guidance on topics such as uh, climate change or environmental sustainability. And then they go back out into their communities and they do uh, action projects, meaning they can get engaged with their community to uh, create awareness, uh, do small projects, yeah. um, and, and so on. And then at the end of both internships, the six to eight week internship or the ambassadorship, they get to present their progress in the form of a poster or presentations and so on. Okay. Uh, and more recently, we started a third format, which is called an outdoor research program. It's called an ESOR program. And here students, uh, it's somewhere between the, the hybrid model I described earlier and the six to eight week internship. This is a three week intern, uh, oh, sorry, three days a week they come in and yeah. um, they get to pick different locations outdoors where they would like to go and explore and understand the environment better, apply scientific methodology to understand problems yeah. and then come up with solutions. So, so different formats. And I think every scientist and laboratory, depending on their resources and interests and their expertise can choose among these or other formats that are most right. uh, productive. Okay, thanks for that. Um... What role does teacher professional development play in bridging science education and research? And how can we ensure educators stay informed about latest scientific advancements? Yes, uh, this is a critical part of the uh, knowledge transfer process where teachers immerse themselves in uh, a professional setting such as in a laboratory and uh, conduct research hands-on. And this gives them first-hand experience in some of the latest developments in science. They're able to uh, learn new technologies, practices, concepts, and so on. And that immersion really helps student, uh, teachers deeply understand how they should teach their students in the laboratory so that the, the me methodology of uh, science that is taught is authentic. <clears throat> and the students and um, be more informed, not just in terms of information and textbooks, but actually in terms of doing science the way it is practiced. And this is a critical step in the knowledge transfer process, in my opinion. Now, teachers can also participate in curriculum development. Now, whereas scientists may be generating new technologies and new uh, concepts and practices, it's the teachers in the end who are going to figure out ways to communicate those practices, concepts, and so on to students. So having them engaged in the curriculum development process accelerates the timeline through which latest advances go into the classroom. And we, as I mentioned earlier, we also throw in students into the mix. So you have scientist, educator, student partnership teams that together identify the gaps in current curriculum 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis what's what's been advanced in the laboratory, and then figure out exciting ways to bring that curriculum into the classroom. And we do that over a two to three year cycle. We can talk about that later if, if you're interested. Yeah, definitely. That was very insightful. Thank you. Uh, the fourth question. What are the challenges faced when trying to bridge science education and research and how can these obstacles be overcome? One of the major challenges is the, the gap between how long it has been since scientists have been in, say, high school. Um, and the, that gap can contribute towards their lack of understanding of the teaching process and the limitations in terms of time and resources uh, in a typical high school laboratory. So I think it's not very difficult to bridge this gap by having scientists uh, visit high school classrooms, uh, spend some time there observing how students are taught and, and interacting directly with students. And I think a lot of scientists realize that they've lost that connection and they need some way of bridging that gap. And one way would be through their students, such as graduate students or undergraduate students, uh, or even with teachers bringing them into the laboratory. So you, so that's one of the major challenges is the, the uh, knowledge gap between an experience gap between professionals and, and uh, teachers and students. The other obstacle is, as I mentioned, high school laboratories have limited resources and also limited time. They have, teachers also have a very busy schedule in terms of what needs to be taught in the classroom. And with all these constraints, I think you need to figure out what is the best and most effective way of bringing new curriculum into the classroom without compromising on the accuracy and the authenticity of the materials. So you have to, the scientists have to be deeply engaged in uh, recognizing that expensive instrumentation is not something a high school laboratory can afford uh, and, and maintain. And so for that reason, they'll have to think about shortcuts that are cheaper instrumentation or uh, you know DIY type <laughs> instrumentation that can be built with uh, components that can be bought from a grocery store or a hardware store. Uh, and that itself could be an educational experience as well. So, so these are a couple, and I would say the third one, the big one also is funding. Okay. Um, it's very difficult to get sustained funding for both development and maintenance of curriculum, because as I said, science is always advancing. So if you developed curriculum three years ago, that curriculum is already outdated by the time you're bringing it into classroom. So you need to have some way of, sustaining the advancements and maintenance of that curriculum so that they keep up with the scientific advancements. So there's, there's quite a few, but they're all yeah. uh, addressable with some creative approaches. Yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. And finally, our last question for the day. Uh, are there successful examples of collaborative initiatives between universities, research centers, and K-12 schools that have significantly impacted science education and research outcomes? There's there's many, but I can share some examples from our own work. Yeah. Um, so at my institute, we have uh, a fairly 
sustained effort over the last 20, 25 years to bring curriculum modules into schools. And you know, we recognize that this is a systemic challenge. So we do this through two efforts. Uh, one is the Systems Education Experiences program that I founded over 20 years ago. And this program develops new curriculum modules, uh, pilots it in classrooms, and then um, gets the feedback from teachers to make it better so it is um, easy to use within the resources and constraints of classrooms. Then we align it to state and national standards. And then we run teacher training uh, and we provide a, a lot of supporting material like teaching instruments, evaluation instruments, uh, and so on. And all of this is then disseminated free of cost uh, online. Uh, and we also do in-person and uh, web-based training of teachers uh, across the country in the U.S. And and we have one example uh, of this, the impact of this, of this curriculum we've developed is uh, the California Board of Education has adopted some of the curriculum modules we've developed as official curriculum. Oh. So it is now being taught throughout schools uh, in California impacting uh, uh, over a million students each year. And we've also been working with uh, Washington State where, where I'm at um, to develop new curriculum modules, uh, such as on systems medicines, which we've just launched this year and it's been piloted in three schools and will be expanded significantly over the coming year. Wow. And the curriculum modules, as I said, have also been uh, disseminated free of cost online. So. The first two examples I gave you in California and Washington were in-person contacts or direct contacts, but yeah. we can't reach all the students and teachers worldwide. And so we've made it available online, which is something that we've seen has had a big impact with uh, usage of these modules across all 50 states in the US and in fact, across over a hundred countries worldwide. So there's uh, many, many students and teachers who have been impacted by this effort. Now, the second program that I do want to touch upon is called the Logan uh, Center for Education, also at the Institute for Systems Biology. And we work very closely with them. In fact, a lot of things we do is in a close partnership uh, with the Logan Center. And their approach is to take a top-down approach, which is to work with leadership and uh, administrative um, officials across the education system or a school system so that they can help them usher in change at the systemic level. So whereas the C program is developing modules that target students and teachers, and you can think of it very much as a bottom-up approach, the Logan Center works top-down in trying to help this, the teachers get the support of the leadership so that their appropriate policies, like I mentioned early on in, the, in this conversation, okay. that you need uh, protected time for teachers to participate in internships. You need yeah. some accommodation for new resources that can be brought online and so on. So there's evidence from the Logan Center work that when we worked with a school system that was underperforming, yeah. um, just within one year of this top-down approach of helping the administration bring in new materials and practices, improved the performance of students across the school district and made it at par or better than some of the 
okay. uh, best performing schools um, in, in the state. Yeah. So there's many examples um, of having huge impact on yeah. careers of students by yeah. participation. Yeah. That's great. What you're doing for the community is remarkable. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Baliga. It has been absolutely wonderful having you on our podcast and we appreciate you giving us your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you would like to ask us a question about today's podcast, I would like to offer your expertise and join us as a guest speaker. Please email us at the link in the description box. Thank you for supporting our podcast and we hope you have enjoyed listening to today's session. Stay safe and see you soon.